0: As I'm listening to the music that I selected this morning, I remember the conversation that Andy and I had last week. um, And he was talking about songs in minor keys and major keys. And I promise you, the last song is going to be a bit more up than the last ones have been. I'm going to start the sermon this morning with a story that some of you may have heard from me before, as I told a version of it several years ago from this pulpit. And if you have, please bear with me, as I think it fits well with the message this morning. Shortly after Joan and I were married, um, 35 years ago, we attended a United Methodist Church in Herndon. After we'd been attending for a short while, I was asked to make a brief pitch as part of their stewardship campaign. They wanted to hear from younger and newer people in the congregation, and at that time I was both. I I thought of a a couple of different angles before I decided on using the biblical story of Jesus feeding the 5000. To make my point for those of you who are not raised in a Christian church or who may not be familiar with the story i'll repeat it here and for those of you who who have brought your bibles this morning. You can turn to the book of Matthew chapter 14 verses 15 through 18. As evening approached the disciples came to Jesus and said. This is a remote place and it's already getting late send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away, give them something to eat, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish they answered. Bring them here to me, Jesus said, and he directed people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were more than 5,000. Now, the traditional interpretation of this story is that it demonstrates two things about Jesus. First, he was compassionate with those in need. And second, that he was able to perform miracles and by doing so here, he cemented his position as the son of God. Now, I've never been a believer in miracles, nor do I believe that the Bible is entirely historically accurate. But I do think that many of the stories in the Bible incorporate messages that can help people to live loving, generous lives, even if they might be based in things that didn't actually happen. So back to the Methodist Church and my stewardship message after summarizing the feeding of the 5000 story. I suggested that maybe Matthew left something out. Maybe I said before Jesus passed around the baskets, he preached about generosity and giving to those less fortunate. And maybe he told the crowd, give according to your ability, take according to your needs. And more people gave what little they had for others. Maybe the miracle was actually the generosity of the crowd, a crowd that was not well healed, that had little. But was inspired by Jesus words give according to your ability and take according to your needs. And then I said something about us all needing things from the church inspiration on a Sunday morning or consolation during a time of loss or a sense of community. And we should all take those things as we need them And in return, we should give as we are able of our time, our talent, our compassion and our money. I don't have any idea how effective my little stewardship message was, but a couple of weeks later, I was on an airplane on a business trip, and I was leaking through the airline magazine as we were waiting for takeoff. And I happened on this story about Karl Marx, the founder of Marxism, the author of the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital, who once wrote that religion was the opium of the people. And I came across one of his quotes. From each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Not so different from my message a few weeks ago. So in a conservative United Methodist Church in the DC suburbs, I had essentially put the words of Karl Marx in the mouth of Jesus. (laughs) And that may be the reason that I was not asked to speak again. (laughs) Look across the world's religions And you'll see that one common virtue is generosity, the idea of giving of yourself in service of others, or sometimes in service to the religion itself. But different religions, denominations, different sects, inspire generosity in different ways. Buddhism holds generosity as the first step on the path to enlightenment. Islam positions generosity towards others as an obligation, a social contract some religious leaders compel financial generosity if you could call it that through fear of perhaps eternal damnation the church of latter-day saints the mormons require an expression of generosity through service to the church as a criterion for membership and again this begs the question is it generous if it's required and they also expect members of the church to be very generous with financial contributions Unitarian Universalists imply the virtues of generosity. Through songs, readings, the UU principles, and of course, the annual service auction. Across many houses of worship, very often the question asked, either explicitly or implied, is how generous can you be? But what if we just changed the order of those words and asked, how can you be generous? What possibilities does that open up to us? And how does that help us nurture and heal ourselves, each other, and our world? What does it mean to be generous? The answer to that question probably for many of you begins thinking in monetary terms. Maybe it gets you thinking about philanthropists or wealthy individuals or corporations that make big donations to some worthy cause. There's a story in the Washington Post this past week about Joan Crock and her $220 million contribution to NPR. Um, Or maybe it's Jeff Bezos creating the Bezos Earth Funds and endowing it with $10 billion to fight climate change. On a more relatable scale, maybe it takes you back to our own pledge drive last spring and the congregational discussion that we had in June that we had about our budget. And perhaps there's a bit of concern that this is what this sermon is about. It is not. (laughs) Generosity need not be limited to money generosity is showing a readiness to give more than is necessary or expected. And yes, that may include money, but it, also, uh, it may also include other things that we all possess within ourselves, our time, our talent, small acts of kindness, generosity of spirit. Generosity is about giving those things away without an expectation that you will receive anything in return other than feeling good about what you have done. Uh, uh, Gandhi has, has said, um, let me see if I can get this right, because I don't have it written down here. The fragrance remains in the one that gives the rose. So as an aside, I will say that I've come to expect that when I am generous with my time and put together a Sunday service, I will get something in return. And that something is a deeper understanding of myself by having to wrestle with the issue that I'm addressing and how I think and feel about it. It's personal development for me that never fails to deliver. And I would encourage any of you who are thinking about it to generously share your thoughts, your ideas, positions, hopes, and or fears in the Sunday morning sermon. For most of us, it's easier to give back, to be generous, when we have more of something. Jeff Bezos net worth is $160 billion. So it probably wasn't too difficult for him to give 10 billion of that away. And while I don't have $160 billion or $10 billion or $1 billion or anything close to that, many of you know that I've stopped working for a living in June. And some some would call that retirement. I'm not yet comfortable with that term. Um, though i will say that retiring for me so far has been about finding new ways to be busy and to be tired again so it's kind of (laughs) retiring that's a really bad dad joke (laughs) (laughs) In, in any case i have more time for other activities than i had six months ago and and so i find that i'm generous in giving my time not only to my family but to other organizations, including, but not limited to this church. I would likely not be leading this service today for better or for worse if I were still employed 40 or more hours a week. It's natural for all of us to be generous with things we have more of, whether that's money or time or talent. And those of us who will be leading us in the last song today are likely more willing to share their talent today because they have a lot of it. So my gratitude for that. But let's not limit ourselves to generosity from abundance. There's a term that I came across several times as I was preparing for today, and and that is generosity from scarcity. So let me illustrate what that looks like by a couple of stories. I came across the first story just this past week on the NPR website. It's part of of their uh, Unsung Heroes Series from the Hidden Brain Team, which features stories of people whose generosity lays, leaves a laugh, lasting impression on someone else. And in this story that I'm about to tell, the hero, if you will, is probably not the person you first think it might be. In 2012, Laura Eshelman was a single middle class woman in the middle of a mental health crisis. The love of her life had just dumped her and she was struggling with an eating disorder. And to top it off, she was having trouble finding work. She had just finished another unsuccessful job interview, was feeling pretty down, and decided to go to the Whole Foods Market across the street. As she crossed the street, she noticed a man asking for money on the corner. His unkempt hair and clothing reflected someone who'd been living outside for a while. She watched as he asked a passerby for change and as the passerby ignored him. As Laura approached the store and passed the man, he turned his attention to her, asking her, too, if she could give him a bit of money. Later, much later, Laura described the moment. I don't remember what my response was to him, and I'm glad that I don't remember, because what I do recall is that whatever I said, it was very likely unkind and harsh, something to the tune of, leave me the hell alone, I don't have anything to give you, just go away. Laura continued into the grocery store, but as she perused the aisle, she noticed herself feeling distracted and rattled. I couldn't quite put my finger on it until I until the realization of how rude and awful I had been to this person. It hit me like an anvil. I remember thinking, what have you become? Who are you? She left her groceries behind rushed out to find the man who was still on the street corner. I hustled over to him, she says. Began apologizing profusely and dug out some change that, co- that I had, of course, been at the bottom of my pocket the whole time. As she handed him the change, the man took her hand in both of his. And he just said, It's gonna be okay. And Laura says, For the first time in a long time, I felt like somebody who was seeing my own pain, and I started to cry. Laura and the man stood together for a few moments before parting ways. She never saw him again. She said later, if he were here right now, I would love to be able to tell him that that moment on the street was one of the few glimmers of light in that extremely dark period of my life. The man on the street didn't have much at all. Most people would think he didn't have anything. But he had compassion and he shared it generously and he made a difference in a stranger's life. This next story probably won't make NPR, but it it struck me as generosity from scarcity as well. It involves someone in our congregation who I know is a very busy lady. I'd asked her to join a task force that I'm on looking at options for expanding our space. And after listening to my pitch, her response was that while she'd love to help, her life was currently full to the rim that between her job, her family, and her involvement in numerous outside activities and organizations, she just had no time to commit to anything. I got it. So I backed off. But a few days later, despite her being busy and her fully committed schedule, she came back to me and told me that she'd reconsidered, that this was important work that she wanted to be involved in, that somehow she would make the time despite having little free time for herself. A generous contribution of her time, despite its scarcity, and I'm very grateful for that generosity that she has shown. Beyond the day-to-day opportunities that we have, generosity can be grounded in faith practice. The holy writings of various religions abound with examples and instructions on how to be generous, regardless of your position in society or how much you have. In Buddhism, on the path to enlightenment, the first step is to be generous. It is said, Dana or giving is the basic Buddhist virtue without which you can hardly call yourself a Buddhist. Dana consists not so much in the act of giving as in the feeling of wanting to give, of wanting to share what you have with other people. This feeling of wanting to give or sharing is the first manifestation of the spiritual life. In Islamic teachings, there's a story that illustrates how the prophet Muhammad thought about generosity through scarcity. After speaking about the importance of giving to others, Muhammad was asked, what if a person has nothing? The prophet replied, he should work with his own hands for his benefit and then give something out of his earnings to charity. And the companions asked, what if he's not able to work? And the prophet said, he should help poor and needy people. The companions further asked, what if he cannot even do that? And the prophet said, he should urge others to do so, to do good. The companion said, what if he lacks that also? And the prophet replied, he should check himself from doing evil. That is also a charity. In the Christian Bible, there are many stories of generosity. In the book of Mark, in the New Testament, there's a story of Jesus watching people put offerings into the Temple Treasury. And it goes like this. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Which brings us to Unitarian Universalism and to this congregation. We, of course, don't prescribe how to think of generosity. We don't identify the path to enlightenment or a single prophet or a most wise or a messiah or a supreme being who puts forth their wisdom through declarations or stories or parables. We don't require service of a certain level. Uh, we don't require giving of a certain level as a prerequisite for membership. We don't have a set of commandments, but what we do have are a set of principles, seven principles, which UU congregations commit to affirm and promote. And if you'd like, you can find them in the front of the gray hymnal, because I'm gonna read them aloud and if you wanna follow along, Um, and it's right before the first hymn. And while when while generosity is not a standalone principle, the virtue of generosity is woven through each of them, if you look hard enough. As I read the principles aloud, think of how generosity broadly defined might be applied to each the first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. The second principle justice, equity and compassion in human relations. The third acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. In the fourth a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. The fifth principle is the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregation and in society at large. The sixth is the goal of world community with peace, liberty and justice for all in the seventh is respect for the interdependent web of all existence, of which we are a part. I can see the the web of generosity weaving through each of those, the thread of generosity weaving through each of those. Um, Now, a bit of late breaking news. On Friday evening, as I was just about done with what I was going to say today, I opened an email from the Unitarian Universalist Association the umbrella organization for UU congregations in the U.S. And as it turns out, there's a well advanced proposal to replace the seven principles with six values. And yes, you guessed it, generosity is one of those values. And here's what the UUA proposes to say about generosity as a value. We cultivate a spirit of gratitude and hope. We covenant to freely and compassionately share our faith presence and resources our generosity connects us to one another in relationships of interdependence and mutuality cool as a uucl board member and someone who wants to see us expand our reach i want you to be generous to this church generous with your time your talents and your monetary contribution but as a citizen i want you to be generous to the world By being generous to the world, you will be generous to this church. And by being generous to the church, you will be generous to the world. Don't get stuck on how generous can I be. Instead, ask how can I be generous. Give according to your ability. Take according to your need. Accept the generosity of others and live in a way that others can receive generosity from you. Amen.